Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Hope you're having a nice, I think it's Thursday. Toronto Blue Jays win again last night. Making you stay up late this week. Rain delay on Tuesday pushes it back. I'm sure nobody that stayed up for the 10th inning last night walked away disappointed. The Jays win 3-2-10. and 10. They've now won 6-7. of seven. Their cushion on a playoff spot back up to 3.5. Eight games back of the Yankees. Who, by the way, just put Scott Efros and Nestor Cortez on the I.L. Things are just never getting better in New York. And our first guest today spent a lot of time there in the last week, uh, willingly or not. So he knows the ins and outs of uh, LaGuardia. If uh, Nestor Cortez has to find his way there for a rehab assignment, anything like that. We had a loaded show today. We're going to talk to my pal Chad Price a little bit later. He's got an album coming out today. And he's playing the Rivoli tomorrow. Uh, also, just a monster Jays fan. We got Ross Stripling coming on a little bit later, too. See if he can give us the secret to that change up. And why, even though he's used it a little bit less lately, it keeps getting more and more effective. Before we get into either of those guests, though, for the next hour, we got Ben Nicholson Smith beside me. Ben, how are you, man? Doing great. Good to be here talking some Jays. Interesting times, as always. So thanks for having me in. Yeah, it's uh, interesting times. And there's two versions of interesting times, right? There's the everything's going well version of interesting times. There's everything going poorly version of interesting times. You've drawn the things are going well time. It's amazing how often that can oscillate in the course of a season and just flip back and forth. Because, yeah, I feel like there have been many, many times already this year where you kind of look around and think, okay, they have major issues. And those those are very real issues that some of them continue to linger and some of them have been resolved. But now you look at this team and they look pretty good. There are still some underlying questions, especially on the pitching staff, but they're in a really good spot. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing with sequencing. And, you know, I've mentioned this a couple times lately, the team quality isn't static, right? You run into a team when they're hot, you run into a team when they're cold, you're hot, they're cold. If you were to lose three, this is the standings version of the old, oh, you fail seven out of 10 times in baseball and you're still a, a real success. If you lost three times a week for the season, you'd win 92 games. But sometimes you're going to win seven one week and then lose six the next. That's the way it's going to go. Um, so the Jays have won six of seven. Pretty big one last night. Barrios with his 13th quality start, 15th time in 25 outings. He's had an average or better start. Despite what the ERA says, he has uh, given you an average day more often than not. ERA all the way down to 528 now. Whew, wow. It's shrinking. Um, the bat's a little quiet, but man, does the bullpen ever come through in this one for them, Ben. Like, the, the bullpen's quietly been unbelievable over the last 30 days. Third best bullpen in baseball in the last month. But man, if there were ever an example of it last night. Yeah, they were really effective and got just so many key outs. Um, and and I do think that Anthony Bass is emerging as someone who, with a couple strikeouts yesterday, really emerging as someone that you want to see in those high leverage situations. That's why he was brought over. He's definitely fulfilling that potential. So I, I think that's for the Jays. One of the reasons that they've been playing a lot better is, of course, their bullpen has been very reliable. And as we move ahead into the deeper part of the season and then into the playoffs, you just know that those relievers are going to be needed again. So I think that's a great sign for the Jays that their relievers are doing better. I still think they could have used one more at the deadline. I don't think that three great weeks erases the need for more relief because it's always there. And uh, yet 
this is a very good sign for this team. It is. And, you know, you you have to kind of manage the situation you're in, not the not the situation you wish you were in. Um, still some, like you said, uh, not red flags necessarily, but the Jays doing this over, and again, over the last 30 days, number three in bullpen ERA, third to last in swinging strike rate. So this is still not a bullpen that misses arms basically at all. Uh, you can get it done with smoke and mirrors and ground balls. I mean, Zach Pop had six and two thirds, very good inning. And I think he had one strikeout. Uh, you can be good situationally. And the Jays rank by most metrics as a top seven or eight defense in baseball. So that pitch to contact is going to go a little further. Um, and then, you know, most of your swing and miss stuff just sits in the arm of Jordan Romano, who we had some concerns for a little bit there, but he looks back to form as well. I guess not pitching five or six days at a time maybe helps. Yeah, for a while early in the season, he was used so much. Now he's getting a bit more of, of some breaks. We got a piece up uh, or going up at sportsnet.ca by Nick Ashbourne looking at the slider usage from Romano, how he's been able to use that to get more strikes, um, even uh, you know alongside the fastball, of course, which is an essential pitch for him. Um, but the slider's been really effective. So he's quietly been someone who I don't think we've talked about a ton this year, which is such a big compliment to a closer because, you know, if you're, there's so many markets in baseball where, you know, the closer can be a real talking point. And even, you know, it's remarkable too, like being, having been in New York this past weekend, you hear some of the talk radio there and like Yankees fans are just so down on this team. And it's like, oh, you know, they have so many issues. Of course, now, as you mentioned, at the back of their bullpen, they've got questions. And so for the Blue Jays to be in a position by contrast to that, where their closer is actually someone who has been very reliable, it's it really does set some other things up for this for this pitching staff. Yeah, and Romano on the season now, you know, there have been ups and downs, but he's more or less metric-wise right where he was last year. 235 ERA compared to 214 last year. 321 fielding independent pitching versus 315 last year. Not missing, not striking out as many batters, but still the same swinging strike rate. So in terms of trying to measure his stuff, it's still there. And then he's walking fewer guys. So I think he's in a good spot there. Um, we'll just use this point. I had, I had this teed up as a topic for later, but let's just do it while we're here talking about the bullpen. This is how the bullpen sets up in terms of who's been put in the most leverage situation. So we can measure leverage and kind of get an idea of who a manager trusts the most. And some of this is Charlie Montoyo and some of this is John Schneider. So um, grain of salt, but Jordan Romano, clearly the most trusted. Jimmy Garcia and Adam Simber have been kind of that second tier. And then Anthony Bass, Tim Meza, David Phelps in the next tier down. Richards and Kikuchi kind of Richards, when you need him, maybe that three pitches the other night, he came through, but uh, Kikuchi, not in the trust tree. Um, that kind of, imagine as a pyramid, Romano, Garcia Simber, Bass Meza Phelps. Do you think that's that's pretty much how Schneider's going to move forward here in terms of who he trusts in what spots? I, I think I would restructure it a little bit. Um, and I would probably go Romano, of course, number one. Then I would say Bass and Jimmy Garcia are the Bass. two, three. And then I would say you've got Simber, Mesa likely to join Simber in that next year. And beyond that, I think Richards is someone that's probably hard to trust, trust. And Kikuchi, it's impossible to trust. Yeah. Uh, sorry, where do you have Phelps in there? Oh, Phelps would be in the Simber-Mesa group. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. And then, so the Kikuchi thing, I mean, at this point, it doesn't look like they're going to send him down to AAA. I had made the case that 
whether you thought he could get something going in the bullpen or not, AAA made sense to me because you're going to need a sixth starter a couple times in September, and that way he could stay stretched out. It seems like they're committed to this for now. Um, are they just kind of riding it out till September 1st, and they're basically running the bullpen a man short until then? Yeah, because Kikuchi is a candidate to give you length or pitch in a blowout, but does Is he? Uh, yeah, I mean, in a in a blowout, you could pitch him. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you could, and then he comes into a seven-run game the other day and yeah. uh, gets the hook in and, one uh, in the first inning. And, so. and that, but that's that's the only time that you can use him. Yeah, because even if you're down four, I think that's a Trevor Richards spot, not a Kikuchi spot. So really, like you say, it essentially means that they operate one man short in the bullpen. I do think that they ride it out. Um, you know, clearly, he's not someone that you can trust, um, but. With two more years, like if he was on a one-year contract, he'd be gone. He might be released. You know, uh, this is not someone that for the 2022 season you have a ton of confidence in. But there is a long-term commitment. So, you know, what do you do there to try to get something out of him? Um, and, and with rosters expanding, he does have some importance to the pitching staff. And I think you were saying this on the show yesterday. But this is a pitcher who, like it or not, he probably is the number six starter on this team to this to this point. Yeah, unless you really believe in kind of the last five, six starts of Thomas Hatch's season, the numbers have gotten more acceptable, but I still think Kikuchi's getting that call. And if you're talking about, okay, well, you need someone who maybe he gives you four, I think you're still relying on Kikuchi more. That's a, I mean, I don't mean to be to pick on Thomas Hatch, but it's kind of an indictment of, of the overall starting pitching depth. And, and I mean, you lost Ryu, you you traded away Max Castillo, you didn't expect Kikuchi to be this bad, but still, when when they opened the season, there was no one at AAA, so... Yeah, and exactly. I mean, I think that every team loses arms every year. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, it's just part of the challenge of a season, and, you know, the counter to that, too, also is you've got Gosman and Manoa, who are on track for 180, 200 inning seasons. They've been tremendous, so... You know, those guys at the top of it have been have been great. You've maybe got a bit more than you could have expected. Um, but at the back end, they are now pretty shorthanded because even Mitch White is probably someone who's going to give you realistically four and a third, four and two thirds yeah. on, on a pretty good day for him. Yeah, everything statistically, everything we heard out of L.A. when we talked to people post-deadline was that around the 70, 75 pitch mark, Mitch White is going to teeter off in terms of effectiveness in terms of the quality of the stuff um which is fine some some guys got to learn how to do that some guys yeah. are always gonna i mean ross stripling's still usually only going 80 85 pitches even when he's cruising so uh that's just kind of the era we're in um and the other trickle down effect of having mitch white starting like that is that he's not available as a long man in the pen so you you need someone in that spot and uh, i guess it's kikuchi for now i thought maybe they would have a decision to make a tougher decision to make when Tim Meza was ready, uh, which was way before any of us expected, I think. Uh, I don't know what they did to him to yeah. get him back two weeks after a dislocated shoulder. Um, but Meza back and Zach Pop gets optioned. I don't know about you. I, I can understand the Pop option. He was good for the Jays, but he has options. I think they probably want, like, that's as much a developmental move as anything because he basically was only throwing that sinker. And I think they would probably like to get him using that slider a bit more effectively for some swing and miss stuff. Um, 
but there are more names potentially coming back. Uh, Taylor Sacedo was just reevaluated in Toronto on the weekend. Uh, Julian Merriweather exited a game Sunday under mysterious circumstances, but he'd been great over six rehab appearances. Nate Pearson exists maybe. And then you have Matt Gage down there uh, as well. And now Zach Pop. So only one of those guys can come up with the roster expansion. Do you think there's a point at which the Jays would reevaluate the Kikuchi decision? And send him down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, of course. Yeah, I think you have to reevaluate these things constantly. I'm sure the Jays will um, consider that. I, I like your point about the doubleheaders too. I mean, you have to have some sort of plan there. And if you do send Kikuchi down, the 15-day minimum in the minors is waived if it's a call-up for the doubleheader day, if you're right. the extra man. Right. So then that creates flexibility. And so, and regardless, they would have that extra man for the doubleheaders. You could bring up a Trent Thornton and kind of bullpen it if you wanted to. But of course, that's tough to do. And, you know, this is this is not a time to be kind of cavalier with the pitchers that you have. Um, so you you want you don't want to overuse them. Um, I, I think, yeah, you could reevaluate that. I see no reason why you couldn't um, say to Yusei Kikuchi, you know what, maybe we will take you up on that and send you down for a little bit, try to get you reset um, and still an important part of our future and hope that, you know, a, a little bit of time away from the pressures of Fenway and Yankee Stadium can allow him to to get back on track. Now, that's speculation, but I don't see any reason to cross that possibility off. If this were a different era, what we, not even that long ago, what we might see in this Kikuchi situation, maybe a little risky, but not that much, is you throw him on the old waiver heap. And then maybe you can work out some sort of trade if someone's interested. You do the Alex Rios, basically. The we're not sure, but let's see if anyone takes the bait and tries it. And Kikuchi's deal being front-loaded cash-wise potentially makes him a little more stomachable for someone else. Obviously, you can't do that. Uh, that is no longer a part of the MLB transaction window. But Ben, if it were, what do you think the Jays would be trying to do right now? Like if, when you look at where they're at, the type of guy who would get dealt post-deadline waiver trade, what would we be talking about today otherwise? Well, I, I first of all, I, I do miss the August trade deadline. I kind of like that second month of these smaller moves. So, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things that's just lost to uh, to baseball history. Do you, for miss, now at least. do you miss the panic in your mentions when every team waves like 10 guys and you have to be like, no, the Jays can't claim them all. No, the Jays aren't losing them. These are revocable. <laughs> right. When you would see like Manny Machado on waivers yes. or whatever the case. No, I like those headlines. I mean, those are fun for sure. Um, I think, you know, Kikuchi, if he was um, if he was put on waivers, he would clear. I think without any doubt, um, he would clear. Um and then, of course, that in that alternate scenario, you could then talk about trades where money's going back and forth. I think, you know, to me, clearly starting pitching depth is an issue for this Blue Jays team. And so, you know, if there were a way for them to be in that market in a meaningful way, I, I think that would make all the sense in the world. And one of the things that those trades allowed you to do, too, was basically jump the line for guys who get released. So you look at a Ken Giles for a bullpen depth or a Garrett Richards for starting pitching depth. And, and neither of those guys is going to save your season, certainly. But rather than they clear waivers because no one wants to eat the whole money and then it's 30 teams or however many teams trying to trying to bring them in on minor league deals, what you can do is work out a trade in that scenario and be like, hey, we'll eat 500K of this. Yeah. 
and that frees you from 500K. And if the next team's only willing to eat 400K, you get the guy and jump the line. Exactly. And so you can kind of create this for the, for the selling team. It gives them some options. It gives them a little bit of leverage in those situations. To me, I look at a team like the Red Sox, right? Because a month ago, when the Red Sox were approaching the end of July, they were kind of in it. It was too early for them to sell. And so they held on to some guys like Ovaldi. I know he's on the IL right now, but uh, J.D. Martinez. These were players that they held on to. Rich Hill, um, Michael Walker, instead of potentially making some moves. Now, they're pretty clearly out of it. I know they're only four games out of under 500, but you know maybe in a week's time, they'll be even more out of it. And then do you talk to them about one of those pitchers? Because that's the kind of thing where with the month remaining in the season, it's more clear for the Red Sox that they are better off getting a low-level prospect than having Rich Hill or Michael Waka or Ovaldi on their roster for one more month. And for the Jays, that could actually make a real difference. So not an option that they have available to them. Now it's, you know, we're sitting here talking about Yusei Kikuchi and Thomas Hatch. That's, <laughs> you know, considering where those guys have gone this year, to have them as the, the depth behind the current starting five, it, it's less than ideal. But I, I mean, yeah, I, I, think that kind of, I think that kind of deadline did add something. I'm sure for the players, it's nice, though, to have the certainty that you're in the place that you're in. Yeah, I wonder, too, how much of it was baseball didn't like the optics of there's a trade deadline that's about trades, and then there's a second trade deadline that's just about saving a couple bucks here and there, which, hey, I mean, you could frame it as that's part of competitive balance. That's a, a way for those out-of-contention teams that year to, to save a little money or, or pick up an extra something, uh, but I get it. I don't, I don't know that uh, it's coming back. I don't think it is. So unfortunately, unfortunately this is where they are. Um, something else that would have been, we'll use this as a pivot point. Something else that would have been a post deadline waiver move situation. And instead this player became a free agent and the Jays grabbed him. Jackie Bradley Jr. Poor Bradley Zimmer is going to get waived again. I think, uh, Oh wow. Our, uh, our pal, Alex coffee in Philadelphia, uh, told me the other day that the center fielder there that he's brought in to replace is on his way back Oh, wow. uh, sooner than maybe anticipated. So uh, Zimmer with all of, what, two games there? Oh, seven games he's already played in? And guess how many plate appearances he has over seven games? Oh, well, if he was on the Blue Jays, he'd get about two plate appearances in that span. Yeah. So I'll guess the Phillies have been generous in giving him five? Thirteen. Wow. But, yeah. Uh, they have not gone well. So uh, our pal Bradley Zimmer. Anyway, so the Jays let Bradley Zimmer go. I, I'm sure there's. He's also had a couple misplays in center field in Philadelphia, which is uh, I don't know. I, I the metrics were always pretty high on Bradley Zimmer as a center fielder, but to look at small sample defensive metrics and say, oh, he's better than Jackie Bradley Jr. or he's not, or you know, factoring in Jackie Bradley Jr.'s bat. Anyway, Jackie Bradley Jr. has been. A pretty nice boost in a in a tiny sample here. He's started four games in a row now for the Jays. Do you see him or could you see him carving out more time as this goes on? Or is this just a product of timing where, hey, Fenway is a really tough place to play defense and he knows it super well? Yeah, that's a great point um, that he's the ideal person to have in center field at, at Fenway Park. I, I think obviously this connects to George Springer and his Ability, comfort level, willingness. I mean, the willingness is there. I think it's more the comfort level and, you know, how often the Blue Jays want to put him in center field moving forward. Because if he can play center, great. That opens things up with Kirk, with others on the position player core. But 
I think we're probably all in agreement that there's no need to really force that right now if you're the Blue Jays. And so if Springer is your DH for the most part, then I think Bradley's going to be in that mix. Now, I think there's more offensively with Whit Merrifield than with Jackie Bradley Jr. So I think the Blue Jays are doing themselves a favor if they give Whit Merrifield the chance to emerge from the slump that he's been in for most of this season. Um, but, you know, there's there's still going to be times in there for Bradley Jr. to get out there and probably start a couple times a week and appear in four or five games every week. Yeah, if you look at the last week, Bradley has started the last four. Uh, Merrifield has started four games. He's, of course, bouncing around, seeing a little bit of time at second. But that time at second then eats from Espinal, who started three times in the last six days, uh, Biggio, who started twice in the last six games, and Tapia two byproduct of no longer getting those center field starts has only started one of the last six games. So if you're John Schneider, I I know that this is a team that has generally liked to try to keep everyone they ever intend on using at at least fresh. There was that stretch where, you know, they were basically running an 11 man player position player rotation. How do you see this shaking? Is it just going to kind of be ride the hot hand? Because like the the toughest part about this is you could say, oh, well, platoon them, but all the lefties who are bench guys are just not, they don't project as well offensively as the righties, maybe even in a platoon advantage situation. Yeah, and I think, you know, as much as the Blue Jays are a great offensive team, and they are, I mean, they only are, they're third in baseball and WRC plus, only the Yankees and Dodgers ahead of them. They lead the American League in batting average on base percentage, slugging percentage. And a little stat from our pal Drew Fair service uh, that the Jays have eight players with an OPS plus of 100 or higher. So that controls for a bunch of factors, puts everyone on the same scale. Eight guys who are league average or better who have qualified. And if you lower that threshold further, Cabin Biggio sneaks in. Uh, and a lot of teams do not have eight such guys. Eight. Like, that's a lot. So, you know, that's a, a real strength of this team. And I can understand looking at that and saying, well, okay, you don't need as much offense out of your center fielder in that case. And late in games, I'm 100% on board with that strategy. However, I look at Jackie Bradley Jr. and you just look at the numbers, right? Without trying to overcomplicate things. He's batted 311 times this year in 100 games. And his OPS is 580. So this is not a good offensive player at this point in his career, based on what we're seeing. And really, like, once you get past 2016, when was he? So... I think with that in mind, if you have a Whitmer field, even if you have a Tapia, I, I think you want to find ways to get those guys into center field and not just give Jackie Bradley Jr. four starts in a row every week. I, I think that those two are more likely to give you something offensively. Of course, it's a downgrade defensively compared to Jackie Bradley Jr., but he's still there late in games. And also, you know, Espinal too, he's in this mix too. So Mm -hmm. you don't want Espinal to be forced to the bench because you have Merrifield and Jackie Bradley Jr. at second and center. Especially it looked like, it looked like Espinal was ready to come out of that little slump he'd been in. He had a couple big hits, a couple multi-hit games and uh, a couple really good plate appearances that maybe didn't result in results, but were still showing some good process. So yeah, I'd like to see Espinal in there a little bit more. I think Biggio and Tapia, I'm kind of okay with just being some more standard bench guys at this point. Uh, it's just hard to see either of them drawing a start in a playoff game. Right. And I think I, 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 I mean, think that makes sense for sure. Um, and so maybe they're starting one or two times a week and you have, yeah, Tapia in there occasionally. 
Bradley Jr. starts a couple times. Maybe Springer's out there once in a while in center mm-hmm. field, and it's more of a mix and match. And then again, you know, we we mentioned the doubleheaders and the crunch that'll have on the bullpen and the starters. That'll be extra opportunities for these position players as well. And, um, you know, we could talk about potential September call-ups later. Uh, there are not a lot of position players on the 40-man who would who you think would come up and play much. Yeah. Uh, Vinny Capra, Otto Lopez, Leo Jimenez, Zach Collins probably not working their way into starts. Uh, Gabriel Moreno would be the one question, but let's talk about something else before we get to Moreno, because there's another trickle down of the Springer playing DH center field is obviously one, but with the DH slot occupied, Alejandro Kirk has been catching more. He's actually played eight games in a row. Now there's been an off day in there, so it's fine. And he's, he's caught five of them. This is, the most tilted we've seen the playing time split between Kirk and Jansen behind the plate all season when Jansen's healthy. Um, What do you make of that? Five starts over the last 16 days for Jansen. That's really interesting. I mean, I think they're going to need them both. And I've thought, you know, really ever since Jansen came back from, from the injury mid season, there's always, there are always questions about the playing time and how do you balance it? But I just think you need them both. And in a playoff game, Clearly, the lean would be Kirk based on what we've seen from the Blue Jays this year. Um, but I, I just I, I think that you can find ways for both of those guys to get in there. And I think that we're going to see Jansen's playing time tick up in the course of the next couple of weeks with the double headers, with just the need to get Kirk off his feet. Uh, I think that five and 16 goes up to at least half. Um, is it fair to say when you say the lean is Kirk in a playoff game? the gap between them offensively is at this point. And, and Danny Jansen had that hot start, but he has a 33 WRC plus since the all-star break, which means he's been about 33% as effective, taking a bunch of things into account as an average hitter, uh, where he was at 145 before the break. He was killing everything early in the year. Um, is it fair to say that the gap offensively now seems larger than the gap defensively as Kirk improves his framing a little bit. And as Jansen, maybe, you know, some of that talk of, well, pitchers have an easier time pitching to him. It's kind of worn off a little bit just as guys haven't figured it out, no matter who's behind the plate. And part of that, too, is that Alejandro Kirk, with each passing month, gets more comfort with these pitchers, starts to know what it is that they need and what what it is that they're looking for. He's certainly getting to be uh, an established player in the major leagues at this point. So he's he's not a rookie anymore the way he was even a year ago when he was first coming up. So I think, yeah, it's the offensive difference. Kirk is one of the best offensive catchers in baseball. Jansen, as you say, is scuffling. And so with, especially with the DH spot occupied, you don't necessarily have the the means to let them both figure it out at the same time. And in these situations where these games are really big, that's probably goes a long way toward explaining why Kirk has been in there more. It does. And so the other question here that we can ask is when we look ahead to roster expansion, one thing I mentioned was, yeah, there's a bunch of guys on the 40 man who you have to call position player up. You can't just overload the pitchers. Most of those guys aren't going to play. The one guy who maybe you would call up and would play is Gabriel Moreno. Now he's had a bit of a up and down year where he gets the call up, starts off so hot, cools off, goes back down and then starts dealing with that thumb injury again. It's, it's, or not, maybe injury is not the right word, but thumb soreness that's kept him out of handfuls of games here and there, including over a week off uh, earlier in August. Now, since he returned from that week off, over seven games, he has 15 hits, four extra base hits, 
one walk and just three strikeouts. So an OPS of 1.128. And then the kind of athleticism behind the plate, the ability to control the run game, that's all stuff that we saw in small glimpses and we know the book on him. Could you see a scenario where Moreno is the extra guy called up, especially as you head into some weeks where you could probably use a third catcher? I see it. I see it as a possibility, especially later in the month of September. Mm-hmm. My guess is, and this could have changed in the last 10 days or so, but when I last asked around about this, my impression was that Moreno would likely finish out the season at AAA okay. and likely continue to get those reps on an everyday basis where he's able to just build and develop. Then once the AAA season was over, he would be a likely candidate to join the team, even as a taxi squad player, just to have him around because mm-hmm. let's face it, if something happens to one of these catchers, then Moreno might be one that would be in the mix later in the season, potentially even in the playoffs. You have to have someone who's ready because you don't want to be calling him from, you know, Venezuela or whatever the case and saying, Hey, like get back on a plane and get over here. So he would likely stay with the blue Jays through the duration of their season in some capacity. But my guess is that Zach Collins would be that position player to join the team on September one not that he necessarily would be called on in a lot of situations, but he's just a safety net, basically, would be my interpretation of how that would work. September 28th is the last day of the AAA regular season, but Buffalo's doing pretty well. So it's also possible that, uh, you know, you could uh, you could sneak in there. I, I know it's not, a, it's not a lengthy playoff situation but they are only two and a half games out of first place and and developmentally i mean if gabriel moreno is playing in big games of triple a games that matter that's probably a good thing i mean you don't want him just sitting in some instructional league um for him to be playing at a high level competing that's that's good for his development and this is a player who when he did come up he was kind of overmatched so he clearly has some more lessons to learn in the minor leagues Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he looks the next time he comes up because he's still an incredibly talented player and good prospect. Um, But I'm not expecting that to be in the next week or so. Am I right in remembering too, if we're looking ahead to, let's say the Bisons don't make the playoffs, Moreno gets called up for taxi squad or or one or two appearances, whatever it is. During the playoffs, he can be around, he just can't be in the dugout? Yes. So he, exactly. He could be around just like any taxi squad player, but he would still be eligible if something happened to join the team as an injury replacement. And you don't, I mean, there would be a lot of questions with that just yeah. from a game calling and staff management yeah. standpoint. I'm, I'm mostly thinking from a developmental aspect yeah. of like going through those catchers meetings, those starting pitching meetings every day during a playoff run, catching some bullpens or side sessions or whatever. Like, I, I think that would probably be a pretty valuable experience. I went through that with when the Raptors won their championship and I was covering that team, they had basically the last six guys on their roster. So a couple 905 guys, a couple two-way guys, um, and then a couple of the just younger guys did what was, they called it a scout team. Um, and they basically like, okay, you're Giannis, you're Chris Middleton, you're Brooke Lopez, and you learn their plays so we can play against them. Obviously you can't do that as much in baseball, but all of those guys and the coaches who are running it have spoken openly about the value of going through that process. And um, just from a, you know, basketball learning and basketball awareness standpoint, it's the same as going through a playoff series without the playing time. Cause you're prepping for a team. You're watching a lot of tape. You're practicing every day. Um, so I'd imagine there's an effect like that in baseball as well. I think so for sure. And I think even just like the professionalism that would be demanded uh, of that situation, right? Like if you're game planning with Pete Walker and Kirk and Danny Jansen for, let's say the Tampa Bay Rays, 
Like you absolutely have to be there ready to enter that discussion, contribute potentially, do your homework, show up on time. Those are things that players would be expected to do at AAA or really at any level of professional baseball. But the urgency, the level of expectation and intensity there, I, I mean, it just would be different. It's different in the playoffs for everyone, for us, for for them. It's a different atmosphere. I don't know. I've never covered baseball in the playoffs <laughs> before. Six so weeks. this is, uh, yeah, Jays Talk Plus coming to, coming to you <laughs> until, the, until the Jays aren't anymore. Uh, let's take a break. We'll come back. Ben Nicholson Smith's going to hang around with us for another segment. A reminder, uh, we got Ross Stripling coming in, uh, not in physically, but coming on the show around 4.30, so you want to stay tuned for that. Uh, but BNS stays with us next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590, The Fan. More Leafs, more Raptors, more Blue Jays. The Fan Morning Show with J.D., Blake, and Alish. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Still with me is Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet, of At The Letters. So much good At The Letters content coming out of Yankee Stadium. I'm going to say Ross Stripling, Mitch White, Anthony Bass, Ariel Hawani. Am I missing any other guests? Well, we also spoke to a bunch of our Sportsnet colleagues um, in a podcast that I think was just released today. And we, we basically asked them, and I'll ask you this too, Blake, but we asked them, of all the players on the Blue Jays team, who stands out as the one that you're going to be watching the most, that has the most um, potential impact, the, the biggest potential difference maker in the course of the six weeks remaining in the season? We got some really good answers from folks like Dan Shulman, Arash Madani, Ben Wagner, Shai Davidi. So let's let's hear your take. Yeah, I have not heard their answers, um, but I'm going to go with the same answer that I gave when you and I spoke at the midway point and said who's kind of the biggest swing piece in the second half. And it's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. because he has been good, but we've seen what it looks like when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is great. We've seen what it looks like when he gets on a heater. We've seen what it looks like when he's not struggling so much with runners in scoring position and over pulling the ball. Had a great chat with Chris Black and Joe Siddle on the show Tuesday about some of how pitchers are attacking Vlad in those situations and how he is not responding in an effective manner. Uh, So yeah, it's not that Vlad has been bad by any means but he's this team's best player and the lineup feels a lot like when we say since the 40 game mark the Jays have been the best offensive baseball it's only really felt that way when Vlad is hot absolutely it's a great answer um I want to say shot of had that exact answer which uh which is you know a great choice like at a certain point you don't want to overcomplicate things and he's the best player on this team um, he is someone who's capable of so much. And also, this is a player who in all likelihood is going to have to play first base just about every day. Mm-hmm. And he's very capable of that. We've seen the improvement defensively in the course of the last year and a half, two years for Vladdy at first. But with Springer likely to be DHing a lot, with Kirk needing some spots at that at that position, Vladdy's going to be taking the field. So offensively, defensively. We know how he loves to run the bases. 
even as a tone setter around this team in his fourth season in the major leagues, he just has so much impact on where this team can go. So love that answer. Yeah. Um, Mike Petriello has kind of of MLB.com has kind of started banging the Vlad for gold glove drum when you dig into some of the Jays defensive metrics at the team level. Um, but Petriello is uh, enemy number one on the fan morning show because of the pointing out that Matt Chapman's metrics have not been as good this year. And the timing of that was so funny because I, I don't, I don't think defense streaks in the same way that offense does, but Matt Chapman has turned in just like an incredible couple weeks defensively. Oh my goodness. I mean, that play last night where he backhands the ball and kind of shovels it over to second base. At 34 miles an hour, the shovel still, he's still throwing that with, you know, I don't know, not gas, but that's a a pretty good shovel pass. Well, exactly. I mean, try doing it for anyone who has never tried that. Try doing that to someone who's a few feet away from you. You and can't see, but Ben's doing the hand motion here. It's incredibly hard to do at that kind of speed. And, of course, it was an impressive play to field the ball in the first place. He put it right to Bobachet in motion for that double play. Incredible, incredible effort defensively by Chapman. And, look, I mean, Petriello is is a very, very smart individual. No doubt about that. I, I think at a certain point, like, it's very apparent that Matt Chapman's a great defender. I mean, I, it's not to say that I don't care what the numbers say because I do care what they say. But in this case, I don't really believe them. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And Mike went through some great examples of Chapman maybe over-clutching or double-clutching the ball on throws. Uh, and he was very clear that it was pretty much isolated to a throwing thing. But I still think he'll get there by the end of the year. My, my biggest take was that we probably need to study where the stabilization point is for defensive metrics. Like, I have a feeling, and I felt this way going into the Jackie Bradley Jr., Bradley Zimmer center field comparison too, kind of have a feeling by the time a defensive sample is large enough for us to be like, yes, this guy is better or this amount of better than someone else. Too much of that sample is dated, right? Like Jackie Bradley Jr. is 32 now, but we'd probably have to go back to when he was 28 to get a big enough sample to evaluate him. And I think too, there's an interesting distinction to be made between defensive skills and defensive results. Mm -hmm. And defensive metrics are really good at capturing the defensive results. So if a player has a plus 10 UZR or defensive run saves, that's a pick your metric. Usually it actually reflects what has happened. Now, for those of us who have seen Matt Chapman play, we've witnessed the arm strength. We've witnessed his decision-making. We've witnessed um, his his creativity. And and I I don't want to say range because... You know, unless he's going to chase a pop-up, we're not necessarily seeing his range on display given the nature of, of third base as a position. But the tools are so obviously there. His hands are great. He's just so consistent. And so I think that if you were to say to the general managers in baseball, how many third basemen defensively would you rather have the Matt Chapman from this point on? Like, it would be him or Arenado. Yeah. Like, that's pretty uh, much it. I can't imagine. Like, I, I watched, and he didn't, he didn't make any blunders yesterday necessarily, but I watched Bobby Dahlbeck at shortstop for the Red Sox yesterday, and I couldn't help but think the whole time, like, huh, if the Jays were in this situation, I think I'd trust Chapman there. Oh, absolutely. Not I, that you'd get there with Espinal and Bichette, but... Yeah. Oh, I think Matt Chapman could play, uh, you know, again, the range, you know, laterally going up the middle. Is he going to flag down those balls at 215, 220 pounds? I don't know. Maybe if, he could. If Troy Gloss can try it for a couple games. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think if he, if he had to do that for a couple games, zero problem. Zero problem whatsoever. Okay, so the Jays have won six of seven. We're looking ahead to tonight now. Kevin Gosman against Cutter Crawford. By the way, we have the probables across the weekend. Uh, Mitch White against Reed Detmers on Friday. 
Saturday with 15 or more members of the 1992 World Series champions in attendance uh, for a 30th anniversary celebration of that team with throwback bombers being given away at Rogers Center. Alec Manoa against Shohei Otani. It's a nice little matchup. And then Sunday, Ross Stripling against Tucker Davidson. Are you on a call this weekend? I with am not. Wagner? I You're will not. be writing Friday okay. and Saturday. Wow. What a what a game to write off of on Saturday. No disrespect to Mitch White and Reed Detmers or Ross Stripling and Tucker Davidson, but that Saturday game, Manoa against Otani, it's been sold out for a long time. You're going to have that pregame ceremony. You know this Toronto audience loves uh, loves a giveaway day. That's going to be probably probably the most memorable game of the regular season, right? Like we, obviously, if it's a two one snooze fest or something, maybe not. But Manoa Otani on a summer Saturday in a packed Rogers Center, it's hard to think of a better game than that. I think that yeah, on paper, it it's like the most. As you're anticipating the game, and of course, who knows what happens, but it's impossible to beat that from an anticipation standpoint because Otani is here so rarely. Manoa is obviously such, you know, having such a good season. As you say, the the giveaway adds a lot of intrigue for <laughs> fans who love that stuff. And now, in reality, the most memorable games of the regular season are probably going to be games 160, 161, 162. But you know, this is this is really tough to beat. And if things go well these next couple of weeks ideally those three games don't matter ideally, as much they're forgettable because then you could set your rotation now what the jays have done during this six and seven stretch is they've created they've re-established that cushion on a playoff spot they're three and a half games up on the last team out what they haven't been able to do is get that number one wild card spot back with any authority i think tampa bay Uh, Seattle and Toronto are probably going to juggle between those three spots. When you look at this kind of two to three week stretch here where angels this weekend, obviously one left against Boston, but angels this weekend, you got the Cubs in there, the pirates and the Rangers in there with, with only a four set against Baltimore. I think it's including this Boston series, a 19 game stretch with only four games against teams above 500. How imperative is it that, they're at the top of that wild card heap when this little stretch is done. It's the perfect opportunity to really create that lead that they haven't been able to. I, I think that, you know, it's hard. It's pretty difficult to imagine a better schedule than that over, over the course of a couple of weeks. And we've seen the Jays lose to bad teams before, although it hasn't happened that often, but it has happened at times. And, and yet they're in a position here where I think, especially offensively, they're clicking as a group. They've got Springer back. Um, this is a really strong offense that's mostly at full health. So they can really beat up on those pitching staffs, create some breathing room for their starters um, in some instances. It seems like a great opportunity. And, and yeah, no guarantees. But at, at the end of that, they have a chance to be a couple of games up on the top wild card spot. Tough, tough schedule comes up beyond that. And then it's time to really push and prove that you've earned that spot because, you know, only only one team uh, among the wild card three is going to get that by or, or, or going to get that home field into the first round. Uh, Jays, by the way, 33 and 12 against sub 500 teams so far this year. So they have done a good job taking advantage of these windows. Not going to win them all, but 33 and 12 is a pretty good click. Now, before we let you go, Ben, while we're talking about schedules and while we're talking about records against sub 500 teams, your initial take on what a more balanced schedule looks like. You've been covering the Jays for a while. You have to look at that if you're the Jays and 
feel pretty good about. And look, the AL East is still going to be very tough with all these good teams, but the schedule looks a little friendlier in 2023. It definitely does. I, I think that for the Jays, just to have fewer games against the Rays and, and the Yankees, and who knows what the Red Sox do this offseason, right? They have a chance to be really good next year. Um, or course, fold. Oh. I would believe anything in between those things. <laughs> then you've got, you know, Baltimore's obviously getting better. So to, to remove some of those games, replace them with a little more Diamondbacks and Pirates and Rockies. I mean, that's that's good for the Toronto Blue Jays. I think it's good for the game, too. I mean, we're past a point where the American League is its own distinct thing with its own umpires and its own team, you know, league president. Yeah, and, no DH. No DH. I mean, it's... Or- Sorry, there is a DH There's now, a DH rather. everywhere. So yeah. it's, you know, I, I think that that distinction's gone um, and we can safely move ahead where the, the schedule is balanced and you create a bit more competitive balance to use an MLB buzzword. This is one way to actually accomplish that. And I think it's cool. Fans will get to check out a couple different stadiums. We know Blue Jays fans travel well to places like Seattle, Minnesota, Cleveland. Uh, they're going to get a chance next weekend for Pittsburgh, which is a beautiful ballpark and a a nice way to spend a day or a weekend. So uh, more opportunities for that to indulge for a couple minutes in some inside sports media stuff. Beyond inside baseball. This is inside sports media. You get this schedule for 2023. You shy Davidi and Arden Zwelling split up the games around who's writing what and who's traveling where. And I know you guys all do TV and radio stuff on top of that, but the big thing is who's covering the series. How do you guys chop this up? What's what dates on the the schedule are going to be like the most hotly contested ones? Well, yeah, that's a, that's definitely inside sports media. Um, uh, Yeah. It would be a discussion that we would have usually every year around the beginning of the season. Um, of course, in recent years, that's been pushed a little later because you've got COVID protocols and, of course, want to follow the health and safety there. So it gets pushed back. But uh, the three of us would sit down and um, try to map some things out. Um, and there's obviously spring training to kind of consider in there, too. And All-Star is, is a game that we usually cover in some form. Next year, there's the WBC. So you kind of, you know, you get a, a document going, usually a spreadsheet, and Try to start the start the selection process there. It starts with Shy. He's obviously our most uh, senior uh, writer, and uh, it it starts there. And we uh, we fill out the gaps and make sure that we have all the games covered. If you had number one pick, did you look closely enough? I haven't looked closely enough, but I would certainly pick a stadium I haven't been to. Okay. So yeah. do they go to do they go to Colorado? They do. So that might be it because I've never been there. They also go to Dodger Stadium though. That's a tough that one to beat. Might be it. Yes. So a couple of good choices. The NL West ones. I mean, American League East, you have some great parks. Um, but but you, you personally I, have been to them a yes, billion times. Exactly. Yes. Uh, the way, the best way for it to work out would be if you never have to go to the Trop again. Yeah. <laughs> the Trop is, uh, it's not high on my list. The Honest, other three are great. Yeah. And and honestly, part of the reason to, to stress about the wild card and where you're hosting it is there's that. I mean, there are numbers out there, and Jays fans certainly feel it, of the Jays historically just really struggle there across rosters. It doesn't really matter who the, who's playing. There's some weird stuff going on in the trap. Uh, we got two and a half minutes left here, Ben, before we uh, let you get on with your day. Kevin Gosman tonight. We saw some up and down with the splitter early in the year. We thought maybe, you know, there's discussion. Is he tipping? Is he throwing it too predictably? And teams are, are getting on that. 
that has really, really stabilized. There's been almost no up and down and things like how often he's throwing it in the zone, how often it's getting chased. Um, are you back to kind of early season confidence that Kevin Gosman is going to be Kevin Gosman every time out? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just, I think when I look at Kevin Gosman, I see one of the better pitchers in the American league. And of course, for any player, when you look at their season month by month, almost inevitably, there are going to be some ebbs and flows. And Gosman felt at times that he got too predictable. Um, he felt like his command uh, abandoned him a little bit in uh, in June, maybe the early part of July. But from what he told me, the last time I spoke to him, he's feeling a lot better about where his command is at, keeping hitters off balance, being unpredictable. And the results bear that out. I mean, you just look at the season-long numbers with the walk suppression, the home run suppression, and of course, the strikeouts are there. And, and for good reason, when you throw 97 with that splitter, those are not flukes. That's that's really good major league stuff. And I, I expect that, you know, from this point on, um, the Jays have to make sure he gets to the postseason healthy, but they need him in the meantime, starting tonight. They do. Got to take advantage of this stretch. Uh, we took advantage of you being in the building today, <laughs> kept you for an hour. Uh, ben Nicholson-Smith. And yes, that At The Letters episode with Dan Schulman, Shai Davidi, Arden Zwelling, Ben Wagner, Arash Madani on it is now out. I just saw Arden tweet yeah. it out. Uh, so thank you for taking the hour out today. Uh, if you want more Ben Nicholson-Smith, At The Letters, wherever you get your podcasts or youtube.com slash sportsnet, you can find them there as well. Ben, thanks so much, man. You got it. Thanks, Blake. Uh, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to see if the Red Sox have posted their lineup yet, see if we... Uh, can't get a read on who Kevin Gosman's going to be going up against. We're also going to profile Cutter Crawford, who has not great numbers, but when when we had Eno Saris of The Athletic on earlier in the week, he highlighted Cutter Crawford as a guy who, based on just pure stuff, how his stuff moves, how it's looked, uh, is one of the most improved pitchers in baseball this year. So we maybe need to take a closer look at that. We'll go over the lineups. We'll talk to Chad Price, who has an album coming out today. And then at 4.30... We'll talk to Ross Stripling. All that's next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That sweet voice is our next guest who will join us in about 10 minutes here. Uh, Chad Price. That's a song called... What? I'm trying to blank on the song name. The album's called Introversion. Uh, it's out today. Somehow, Someway is the uh, name of that track. Sorry, Chad. He's coming. Out. He's going to join us in 10 minutes. Big Jay's fan. Want to get into some of... Uh, we're going to do a little bit of... 1992 remember some guys like we did with Tass Mellis the other week because again expecting 15 plus former Blue Jays down at Rogers Center on Saturday to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the title you can look for names like Borders, Carter, Steve, Stottlemyre and then this this roster was so back of the alphabet loaded uh Timlin, Ward, White, Winfield no, Borders and Carter, the, the only guys up on the, the first half of the alphabet there. Uh, that should be a really fun one. I mentioned earlier it's Alec Manoa against Shohei Otani. 
based on the probables right now. You've also got Mitch White against Reed Detmers on Friday, Ross Stripling against Tucker Davidson on Sunday. All of those games, of course, on the Sportsnet Radio Network with Ben Wagner and on your Sportsnet Television. Um, should be a very, very fun weekend. Before that happens, the Jays have to wrap up this series with the Red Sox. They've taken the first two, nine to three, and then three to two in 10 innings last night. Tonight, they'll take a crack at a pretty interesting pitcher in Cutter Crawford. And I say he's interesting because the results have not been there. The pedigree is not really there either necessarily. He was not a well-regarded prospect coming into this year. He's already 26 years old. This is, you know, kind of his, it is his rookie season uh, by qualifying cutoffs, but he pitched last year once. Uh, former 16th round pick, there's just not, there's not a ton of pedigree here. However, despite the 514 ERA, there's still some room for optimism that Cutter Crawford might figure it out. We talked to Eno Saras of The Athletic earlier this week, and he identified Crawford as one of the biggest gainers during the season in his stuff plus metric, which tries to quantify what goes into or, or what's coming out of a pitcher's, pitcher's pitches. So movement, does it get swing and miss? Does it get located well? Um, you know, those things go into stuff plus and command plus, and then those feed into pitching plus. Uh, Cutter Crawford, one of the bigger gainers. In terms of results... Again, it's a 514 ERA. Some of the component metrics think he's been a little unfortunate, have him coming in around four and a half ERA. Uh, he gets an average amount of swing and miss. Everything else has kind of not gone his way. Not a high chase rate out of the zone, some really hard contact when he's hit. The big swing pitch for him, and I don't mean swing as in swing at it. I mean, it's going to determine if he can be successful is a 95 mile an hour fastball with some real rise to it. It's one of the highest spin rate fastballs in baseball. He throws it just shy of 40% of the time. It catches a lot of the zone. Despite that, he gets a 24% swing and miss rate on it, but you can hit it for average. You can hit it for power. He might have to learn to live exclusively up in the zone with that one. It, it can maybe catch a little too much of the meat of the plate. It's going to be interesting to see how he continues to develop that pitch. He'll complement it with a cutter that he throws about 32% of the time, more consistently locates that one, uh, but it still gets hit pretty well. He'll also throw a curveball, a changeup, and a slider. Those pitches have been harder to hit for contact, and the slider is his best swing and miss pitch. But he doesn't throw them a ton. Uh, the slider will come in against righties only, the change up to lefties. And, and yes, Crawford is a guy with big platoon splits, not only in his major league sample this year, but in recent minor league samples as well. So we'll see if the Jays put a couple lefties in there. They did not. They put one lefty in there. We just saw the Jays lineup. I'll get to that in just one second. Uh, to round out the Crawford scouting report, in addition to the big splits, uh, the Jays faced him on July 23rd. He gave up three over six with four strikeouts, a walk, five hits. Uh, Jays went five for 20 against him. Nobody had a multi-hit game. Kevin Biggio was the only one with an extra base hit. So you're looking at two and three plate appearance samples for him that just came out okay if you're the Blue Jays. Here's how the Jays will line up against him. George Springer at DH, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Teoscar Hernandez, Bo Bichette, Matt Chapman, those are the six you're going to see in the top seven in some order. I mentioned earlier Alejandro Kirk had started five games in a row. 
he now heads to the bench for this one, so everyone else slides up a spot. Uh, Ryan Maltapia hits seventh and gets the nod in center field. Santiago Espinal gets the nod at second base as they rotate those touches around. And then Danny Jansen hits ninth and catches Kevin Gosman. So um, your bench then is Biggio, Jackie Bradley Jr., Whit Merrifield, and Alejandro Kirk. The Red Sox, on the other hand, have a tall task, not just on reputation and stuff plus, but on results. Kevin Gosman, elite, elite, elite at getting guys to swing at pitches outside of the zone. Rarely walks anyone. Big strikeout rate, big swing and miss rate. He has gotten batters to swing and miss 17% of the time when they swing on pitches in the zone. That's inside the strike zone. They're swinging and missing almost one in five. That's the number 11 mark in all of baseball. He's also 12th in how often batters swing and miss at stuff outside of the zone. So whether he's working in the zone or outside the zone, he gets a ton of swing and miss. The only other names to be in the top 15 in both of those, swing and miss rate inside the zone and swing and miss rate outside the zone, are as follows. So Kevin Gosman, Corbin Burns, Shane McClanahan, Dylan Cease, Robbie Ray, Garrett Cole, Carlos Rodon. That's not a bad first pass at, hey, who are the Cy Young candidates this year? Uh, Leaving out a couple names for sure, but that's a pretty good class of guys to be in there with. Now, if you can't get a bat on it, Gosman has some kind of mediocre contact numbers this year. It's insulated a little bit because he doesn't allow a ton of contact. Um, He has a 366 batting average against on balls in play. I've said this a couple times throughout the his, throughout the course of the show this year. Even if we were to say, and some metrics believe this, and we certainly can't wave all batting average on balls in play away as luck, even if you were to blame pitchers for a lot of the results of balls in play, a 366 BABIP is so big an outlier that you would have to think Kevin Gosman is getting some misfortune 334 is the next highest mark of any pitcher in baseball. So um, there's some regression due there, or or at least moving forward, he probably won't have 37% of the balls in play drop in for hits. His splitter is obviously the, the a one pitch here. It's the number eight pitch in all of baseball by weighted on base average against Uh, gets swing and miss about 45% of the time. Opponents only hitting 179 against it. It's lost a little bit of vertical break, over the course of the season, but he's stabilized it a little bit by throwing it in the zone a little bit more, and he hasn't really lost anything in terms of results there. He also has the fastball and the slider, which are hit hard when they get hit, but the slider's a very good swing and miss pitch, and he needs the fastball for the splitter to play off of. Doesn't throw a lot of changeups, but he's thrown 11 over the last two starts. That's a small number for sure, but it's the highest he's thrown over any two-start stretch, so maybe he's thinking changeup a little bit more. He's faced this Red Sox team a ton, So it would be a situation to potentially change up the pitch mix. 171 plate appearances for active Red Sox against Kevin Gosman. 365 expected ERA based on walks, strikeouts, and batted ball stuff from StatCast. His four starts against him this year, and yes, four starts already. 26 innings, four earned runs, 37 strikeouts, 22 hits, two walks. That's real good. Uh, Tommy Pham has... Been solid against him in a in a decent sample. J.D. Martinez as well. Uh, Rafael Devers, Alex Verdugo, Kike Hernandez, all poor to downright bad against him in decent samples. 
Red Sox are also pretty banged up, but they get a couple guys back today. Tommy Pham, back in the lineup, leading off. He's followed by Rafael Devers, J.D. Martinez, Xander Bogarts, back in the lineup. Christian Arroyo, back in the lineup. Rob Snyder, old friend Reese McGuire, catching and hitting seventh. Bobby Dahlbeck, unfortunately playing first base instead of shortstop. And Jaron Duran rounds that out. If we get a couple minutes at the end, we'll take another look at that. But that's how things line up for tonight as the Jays go for the sweep. It's a big night for our next guest as well. It's the 2022 CBC Music Toyota Searchlight winner. He has a new album out today called Introversion. He's playing the Rivoli tomorrow in Toronto. Chad Price. Chad, how are you, buddy? Blake, I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Before we get into Jay's stuff, and I'll use a Jay's parallel here, Mm -hmm. you have an album out after three years of working on it. You have... A live show tonight. I know you haven't got to do a ton of those the last couple of years. This is your Toronto Blue Jays first game back at Rogers Center last summer. Is that feeling somewhat accurate? That's absolutely accurate. It's going to be cathartic. I'm going to feel like uh, Charlie Montoyo, Montoyo on the field setting some tears, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, ho- hopefully you, you've got a little more job security. But <laughs> Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um Man, any any nerves or anything like that? Like, what is what is today like for you when this thing you've been working on for three years is finally out? Again, the album's called Introversion. You can find it wherever you get your music. Um, man, long time coming for this one. Absolutely been a long time coming. And, it, and that's fitting because that's actually the first lyric on the first track <laughs> of the album. <laughs> so uh, that's very fitting. But yeah, man, I'm feeling all of the emotions today. All of the outpouring of love from friends and family and fans out there that are just so happy to have some new music out for me. And yeah, it's been a three-year experience. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into this. I wasn't sure what it was going to be when we started this three years ago. And it, uh, it ended up being this project that I'm really proud of. It's like an ex- a true expression of... It, it was therapeutic for me. I know a lot of musicians say that, but it truly was therapeutic and helped me process a lot of things. And it's the most vulnerable I've ever been on a project. So I'm a little nervous about that. I'm, I'm getting pretty real on this one. Um, but it feels good, man. It feels really good. And I just cannot wait to get on stage tomorrow night at the Rivoli and play this with a live band for the first time in three years. It's going to be great. Yeah, I can't wait, man. I'll, I'll be there, you know, full full disclosure. I'll probably be at somewhere nearby until you're set watching uh, yeah. watching the Jays against the Angels uh, as <laughs> As we we do sometimes with these uh, with nighttime concerts, um, we'll get Mitch White against Reed Detmers tomorrow. Um, Man, what a weekend for you in general, but also the Jays. I mean, Shohei Otani's here on Saturday kind of feels like things lined up perfectly for you to just have an unreal weekend. You'll have this Friday show. If there's any sort of hangover emotionally or physically, you get. Shohei Otani against Alec Manoa on Saturday. Uh, how yeah. fired up are you about your Jays right now? I'm very fired up about my Jays. They're on a little winning streak here. They've mm-hmm. been playing well lately. It's uh, it's nice. It's been such a roller coaster season. I, I don't know what to expect with this crew, but it, it feels like they might be straightening things out now. That the pitching's really coming together lately. Um, I feel good. And then yeah, tomorrow or sorry, Saturday with Otani. That's like my first day to relax and chill. So I cannot wait to have the show out of the way the album out of the way and just sit at home, crack a beer and enjoy a quality game. It's going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully the Jays are still hot 
going in there. Um, Saturday is also, they're going to be 15 or more members of the 1992 World Series champion Blue Jays there. It's a kind of a 30th anniversary celebration. Obviously, you can't actually celebrate on the anniversary because who knows if the Jays will still be playing, uh, and that yeah. would be a little distracting. But um, are you old enough that you have memories from that team? Is it kind of a, oh, I watched VHS and highlights? What What is your memory of the 92 and 93 championship squads? I am absolutely old enough to remember that. Oddly enough, that was the first year. I'm pretty sure it was 92. It might have been 93, but that was the first year I actually went to a Blue Jays game. My mom and my aunt took me and my brother there. We're from London, Ontario. So we, I remember driving up and taking the subway in Toronto to the game and going to the, the Sky Dome, as it was, for the first time ever, and just like being wide-eyed and falling in love with baseball. It was actually 92. Um, I'm pretty sure. I remember like Ed Sprague and Tony Fernandez and, Alfredo Griffin, they're all out there, Joe Carter. And uh, so, yeah, I have very, very fond memories of those years. I picked a good year to start to, to like the Blue Jays, that's for sure, back-to-back championships. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And obviously, you know, our fandom is a little different as a kid than it is as an adult. Um, but you're a longtime fan. When you look back at, like, Jays' eras, is there a, a time where you're like, oh, that was the most hardcore I, I've been or, or a time that stands out to you? Like, the one I always say is, like, I think I've seen more Josh Towers starts than anyone on the planet. Uh, is there a time in the franchise history like that for you? For me, it was when I was like a, a nine, 10 year old kid okay. and I was watching like Carlos Delgado and the Alex Gonzalez and Sean Green years. Like those years I was heavy into it. I was into it so much that during spring training, I was watching the games on TV during spring training and I made my own box score sheets. I didn't like print my own. I like had my ruler out and my pencil made my own stats and like was erasing every inning. <laughs> like had my calculator out. Like I was very, very hardcore. So at that age, yeah, that's when I really, really started to get into it and then started playing baseball as well. So I remember those days fondly. I remember Delgado smashing home runs into the fifth deck and, and like running around my house and celebrating. So yeah, man, long time fan here. <laughs> You're stealing my gimmick uh, as a little kid making up his own stats and, and that's yeah. all he cares about. So uh, you've also, I mean, that's a, that's a, Maybe people didn't love it at the time, but you go back and look at that jersey era, the uh, the that kind of different shade of blue with the bright red font. That's uh, yeah. so that's the nostalgia jersey for you. Yeah, yeah, that that kind of aqua blue off color. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. That I love that jersey. They should bring it back. Nice. <laughs> um, so the Jays are rolling here. They've won six of seven. It's always good, of course, to to take a couple games off the Yankees down at Yankee Stadium, uh, especially when you're chasing them in the v division. But for you, I know that your partner was a Red Sox fan before landing in Toronto, and her family has some Red Sox fans in it. Is it yep. a little sweeter when these wins are coming against the Red Sox for you? Absolutely. They feel so much sweeter, and I have since com converted Brit. She is now a Jays fan. She she wouldn't admit that, but I'm just going to say it. She's a Jays fan now. I think she um, admitted it on this show, actually. Did she? I think so. I think I, I maybe, like, nudged her there because it's a Toronto <laughs> radio show, but I think we got her there. Well, I love it. I love it. And, uh, yeah, these wins have been sweet. And, you know, I happen to be in the city of Boston when they put up the 28 spot on them a few weeks back, so... That's definitely a weekend I will never forget. We we went to the next two games, and, you know, the Jays swept that series, which was great. But that 28-run game, I was, like, in the, the center field bar with Britt and her parents and just 
basked in the glory of, <laughs> of that. I didn't know what was happening, but it was amazing. Man, what was so, that crowd like for that? Because it seemed like the Jays have taken the crowd out of it a couple times at Fenway this year, but mm-hmm. I can't imagine a, in a 28-run game what that atmosphere was like. Yeah, you know, it was my first time at a, at a Red Sox game at Fenway, and I was kind of anticipating a bit of a rowdy crowd, maybe a little bit, you know, pushing back against me in my Jays gear. But they honestly were dead quiet. (laughs) After you put 28 runs on someone, you can't really chirp back. So, yeah, I was just, I felt like I was almost in a home game there. It it was weird. So uh, that was a big offensive explosion for the Jays, of course. They were on that hot streak there where they were just beating teams in, and they were the best offense in baseball for a little while. Um, Mm -hmm. This stretch, though, it's been seven good starts from their rotation in a row. I know some of those starters have been up and down on the year, but where is your confidence level in this group of starters the rest of the way? You know, there's, there's still uh, as good as things have been. There's still a lot of playoff race left. Mm -hmm. Are you starting to get more confident in the rotation once again? That's a good question. Um, It's tough to say because again, they have been so up and down, but I really do believe in these guys. Um, I'm a little concerned about Manoa. You know, pitching a full season, like if he has the stamina to do it. He's he's pitching well, but he slowed down a little bit. What's been nice to see is the saving grace of Ross Stripling, honestly, mm-hmm. coming off the bench and, and being able to uh, just bring some, just solidify that uh, the depth starter position. Um, so I don't know, man. It's, it's a tough question to answer truthfully. I want to say yes, I believe in these guys, but the way that it's gone, like so up and down, it's, I really, I, I don't know, man, but if the... Like you said, if the last seven starts are anything to, uh, you know, to, to base your judgment on, then they're looking pretty good. As long as they find that momentum going into the playoffs, I feel pretty good about it. So hopefully they can just keep riding this uh, this momentum out and pitching well. That's always the, the tough part, right? The team's been up and down, and overall their record yeah. and a lot of their stats are good. And it's like, okay, well, what if you're on a streak like this when the playoffs start? And what if you're on a streak yeah. like you were on two weeks ago when the playoffs start? Right, because we've seen it. We've seen it already, right? Where I was like, okay, here we go. They're getting it together, and then here comes the downswing. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a fan. I believe in them. I just want to cheer on the, the product on the field as a fan and, and not judge too much about what's going on. So I will just be cheering as hard as I can and hopefully be able to get to a, to a, some games here at the end of the season. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, Chad, your, your new album, Introversion's out today. You're, you're playing at the Rivoli tomorrow. Um, is there a window for you to get to some of these games, or are you hitting the road? Not hitting the road quite yet. Okay. So we got the, the Toronto album release show on Friday, and then I'm going to be doing a hometown release show in London, Ontario on September 16th, and then heading over to Singapore for a little bit. Whoa. Um, yeah, I'm going to play Singapore at the end of September. So I should be able to find some pockets of time between this show and Singapore to get down uh, to see a game or two because I'm, I'm only about a 15-minute walk away. So I'll definitely make it happen. More motivation for the Jays to wrap up they're part of the playoff push earlier so that you don't have to be on Singapore time trying to check out some of these <laughs> games live. Uh, Chad, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Uh, really looking forward to diving in on the album a little bit more. I, you know, obviously I've checked out the singles uh, that you've been releasing throughout and you're all over the CBC charts. So uh, congrats on that. And I'll, uh, I'll see you tomorrow, man. Thank you so much, Blake. Really appreciate it. See you tomorrow night. As Chad Price, the 2022 winner of the CBC Music Toyota Searchlight Award. His new album, Introversion, is out today wherever you get your music. And you can check him out at the Rivoli in Toronto tomorrow.
maybe the times line up that you can sneak the Jays game into uh, the show starts at nine. So I don't know, maybe the Jays will just put the angels away nice and early and you can focus in on that one. Um, Chad mentioned that the rotation feels a little different, a little more stable with Ross Stripling emerging as an every fifth day starter. Let's take a break. And then let's talk to Ross Stripling himself. Ross Stripling joins us on Jay's Talk Plus next on Sports at 590 The Fan. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That's Vanilla Ice, Ross Stripling's go-to karaoke song, as he told our pal Emily Agard during spring training. He can do the whole thing, apparently. Not going to make him do it on air. He's going to join us in a couple minutes here. Uh, Before he comes on, refresh those lineups for you for tonight. Kevin Gosman on the hill. He'll be backed by George Springer at DH. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Teoscar Hernandez, Bo Bichette, Matt Chapman, Rymal Tapia in center field, Santiago Espinal at second base, Danny Jansen hitting ninth and catching Gosman. Biggio still out of the rotation mix a little bit here. Merrifield gets a down day. Jackie Bradley Jr. not starting for the first time in five games. And then Alejandro Kirk getting his first day off in quite a while. He's been playing a lot. The Red Sox are going to counter with Cutter Crawford. 514 ERA, but again, our pal Eno Saris, who has his stuff plus metric that does a pretty good job predicting future pitcher performance, sees Cutter Crawford as one of the more improved guys. Now, maybe that says a lot about how poor he was last year, but some of the other component metrics also see him as being a little better than a 5 ERA guy. High rising fastball comes in around 95. He's got that cutter. Obviously, his name's Cutter. You couldn't not have that in your repertoire. Uh, he locates that one a little more consistently. Both of those, both the rising fastball and the cut fastball uh, have a strikeout rate in the mid-20s, which is pretty good for fastballs. Uh, and then he'll go curveball, change-up, slider, depending on the handedness of the batter. Ryan Altapia, the only lefty in the lineup for the Jays. Kevin Gosman's facing a Red Sox team that he's faced four times. This year and has allowed four earned runs over 26 innings with a 37 to two strikeout to walk ratio. So good luck. Tommy Pham, Raphael Devers, JD Martinez, Xander Bogarts, Christian Royal, Rob Ref Snyder, Reese McGuire, Bobby Dahlbeck, and Jaron Duran. That's the Red Sox lineup for tonight, of course. They get a couple names back there. Bogarts, Arroyo, Pham had all been banged up. Uh, so those guys draw back in for them. A modicum of good news in a bad news world for the Red Sox. Their bullpen's not in bad shape. They they did use their three most trusted guys yesterday in that 10-inning game and Garrett Whitlock, John Schreiber, and Matt Barnes. Ryan Brazier's probably not available after pitching each of the last two days. Everyone else, probably good to go. Uh, and even Schreiber and Barnes could probably go again. I don't know if they'll throw Whitlock again coming off a of 24 pitch outing 
the Jays' bullpen in maybe the best shape it's been all year with seven consecutive solid starts from their starters. Jimmy Garcia probably not available today after throwing 26 pitches last night. Uh, Jordan Romano, Tim Meza, Anthony Bass, and Adam Simber all got in the game um, but haven't been used a ton over the last couple days because the rotation's been so solid. Speaking of the Toronto Blue Jays' rotation being so solid, one-fifth of that is Ross Stripling, who joins us now. Ross, how are you? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, didn't The timing didn't work out, but I played you in with, with Ice Ice Baby. Uh, man, I, I'm, in, I'm impressed to hear that you know all the words when, like, everyone knows the first verse, I think, but you going every verse deep in, like, a four-and-a-half-minute song is very impressive. Yeah, that's... Um... That was thrusted upon me when I was a rookie with the Dodgers. They did what's called Dodger Idol, and they made all the rookies sing a song in spring training. Um, and that's the one I went with, learned the dance and everything. And, and <laughs> it's just cemented in my brain now, even 10 years later. <laughs> uh, well, it's great, Ross. Um, so I wanted to revisit not your last outing, but the outing before. Your first time back off the IL, you go six perfect innings, and you kind of joked afterward about – you know, giving the okay to come out because you kind of mentally shut down. Um, did you did you second guess yourself at all after? Like, did you think back on it and be like, ah, I could have could have maybe gone a little longer? Um, what what was that process like for you after the fact? Yeah, for sure. You know, I I think it was a learning experience. Now, even in my seventh year in the big leagues, just to you know, don't turn it off until you physically hand the ball over to the manager. You know, my every experience as a Blue Jay had been when the manager leaves the dugout and is walking towards me on the mound, I've always gotten pulled. So the second I saw Schneider walking towards me, uh, that's what I assumed because that's the only, uh, only thing I knew. So then when Schneider looked at me and said, Hey, do you want this guy? I had to be honest. And I had to say, um, you know what? I've Schneider, I've, I've shut it down. I know Yimmy's hot. This is Mount Castle, their best hitter facing me for a third time in a zero zero game, uh, you know, it's time to make the change, but you know, what you learn from it is, is don't shut it off like that. Cause this, you know, it's my game. I had pitches left in the tank and I should be the one to finish it. Um, you know, that's just not how that one played out. But now, now I know moving forward, not to, uh, not to do that for sure. Plus next time you've got to stick it to Zach Granke, right? <laughs> yeah. You saw that quote. I did yeah. see that quote for anyone who missed it. Uh, yeah. I guess Granky texted you and said, the Jays are using you well. They're not letting you go third time through. Yeah. This was in person when oh, we were okay. in the city much earlier in the season. I knew Zach from our time in Los Angeles and uh, yeah, that's essentially exactly what he said. He's like, you know, it, it, obviously that's a much shorter version, but basically saying <laughs> baseball is heading in that direction and that I'm perfectly suited for, for what, for, for what I do and, and that I should only go two times through the lineup, which is pure that drinky straight shooter <laughs> through and through. Yeah, uh, absolutely. He seems like a fascinating guy. Um, it is a bit of a question, though, because your season's been so successful and we look at your last couple starts and, and you're getting into the six without, you know, you're not up around 90, 95, 100 pitches. Um, do you get the sense that you've maybe earned or, or they're going to give you a shot to go an extra time through the order a little bit more often down the stretch here? Yeah, I'd like to think so. You know, it, especially if, if everything's looking good, if I'm throwing the ball well, if I'm staying efficient. Um, you know, I don't think there's any reason to think that I can't get a third time through the lineup and maybe even venture a fourth time through the lineup if, if it works out that way. So, you know, I'd like to think that I've earned that opportunity, but we got a really good bullpen and all these games are must win. 
So, you know, if a matchup dictates something else, you're not going to see me fight it for sure. But, you know, if I'm rolling, I want to stay out there and, and finish my outing. So hopefully get some chances to do that here uh, moving forward. And I'd imagine that having five different pitches that you can throw and locate in a couple different quadrants, um, you know, that to me says maybe you could avoid some of the pitfalls that some pitchers run into third time through because you can mix it up so much. Uh, I wanted to ask you, about your changeup. That's been such an effective pitch for you this year. Um, what has gone into developing such a strong changeup and, you know, just kind of figuring that pitch out over the years? Yeah, you know, it was, uh, it stems from my curveball not being as good last year. So really having to find another pitch to, to use and up the usage of, and that turned into my changeup, which I started having success with last year. So when that season finished, I uh, talked to like Pete Walker, Matt Bushman, even the uh, kind of the analytical team with my agency, and they all kind of had the same opinion, which was up it even more, up the usage of that changeup even more. It was a good pitch. Use it more to righties. Use it more mid count. Use it more to put guys away. Just up it all together. So that was kind of my whole off season was really um, focusing on that pitch. When I started throwing bullpens, I had guys standing on the right side throwing that changeup to right-handed hitters. When I started throwing live BPs, really focused on throwing that changeup all the time, and, uh, you know, I think I've, you've seen that carry over into this year. I think I could use it even more than I'm using it, but, um, you know, right now it's, it's, it's been a, a real weapon that I can use, uh, you know, against righties and lefties in the middle account with two strikes uh, pretty much any time. You know, it's kind of been my equalizer this year. When it comes to throwing that change up to righties, that's, you know, normally that's something we don't see. They say the change up isn't, isn't a good pitch for same-handed batters. Um, how much does that kind of pair with your sinker, which you've thrown more this year too? And how do those two pitches kind of interact for you? Yeah, it's been a good combo for me. You know, the basically the most basic level is righties for a long time could almost eliminate the inside part of the plate to me. I, I just didn't do a lot of work inside the right-handed hitters. I, I would maybe do a like show me four seam up and in to try and get them off my breaking balls and my outside fastballs. And, um, you know, you just kind of started to see right-handed hitters really leaning out over and, and even doing damage on, like, good pitches on the outside part of the plate. So that, you know, basically had to make an adjustment and had to start throwing something to the inside part of the plate and, you know, make them kind of be honest up there and, and respect both sides. And the change-up was that, and then the two-seam kind of pairs off that where it's you know, starts kind of in the middle of the plate, looks like a strike fastball, and then it just kind of gets in off their barrel and, and the more they see it the more they have to understand that oh you know stripling does work to both sides of the plate you can't just look out over and i think that's why you've seen the kind of the sinker change up combo have some success this year as righties are still kind of trying to you know figure out how much i use it and seeing it for the first time when it comes to the mechanics of your changeup, it was pointed out on on twitter recently by codify baseball one of the analytics um twitter accounts that, that you have the highest vertical release point on your changeup. And I, I did some digging. And if you kind of sort by who has the highest release point, not to get too data about it, but um, you know, it basically gives you a list of some of the best changeups in baseball. Was that a conscious thing you did when you were building that pitch to, to try to have the highest release on it? You could. No, that is no. just my natural arm slot, man. Huh. I, I uh, was gifted with a weird ability to uh, go up high with my upward rotation of my shoulder and uh, I don't stride very long, you know, so I, my arm slot is very high, and I think it might even be the highest in baseball. So that's just uh, 
kind of my natural goofy self and, and where the ball comes out, you know, specific to all my pitches, not just to my changeups. Yeah, it's a, I, I found it interesting, and it's something obviously i got to dive a little deeper on, the why the, the release point is so tight with the changeup leaders uh, in terms of that pitch's effectiveness. When you think of it, though, do, do you have a sense of why that might be? Is it a, is it a deception thing? Does, does that kind of release point give it more, like, not more movement, but it almost appears like more movement because it's coming out of a, a unique spot? Yeah, exactly. I think okay. it gives it more more depth in a way, right? Where if I'm releasing it from seven feet high and it still has to get down to, you know, a foot off the ground or maybe even bounce behind the plate, it's got to move seven feet downwards, right? <laughs> I mean, that's just math. Versus if you release it at six feet, it's only moving six feet downwards, right? So I think it does give it more depth. And I think, you know, it's just a uniqueness of my arm angle. Sometimes you see some lefties or the whole, like, Tampa Ray. Tampa Bay Rays bullpen, all throws some weird arm angles. <laughs> it's just something that hit, hitters don't see very often. So it's just kind of a natural uh, deception to it. I look at, you know, a Blue Jays fan favorite for a while, a couple years back, was Marco Estrada, who also kind of thrived with a heavy change-up usage. Um, do you see uh, – you guys don't have uh, – necessarily a ton of similarity beyond the the changeup usage um, but he's a guy who as he got more experience and as he got into his more veteran years uh, relied on that pitch more and more to be his weapon do you see any similarities with the Marco Estrada or is there a a, a guy whose changeup you've looked at and have been kind of like okay I can I can be that kind of guy or I can add that wrinkle to my game so Pete Walker has always kind of uh, talked about Estrada with me. I've never really done my due diligence to go watch Estrada uh, video or anything like that. Um, you know, I kind of think I'm unique in my in my own way and, and kind of going to navigate my own path here. But, you know, always looking for help and stuff. And where Pete would talk about it, it's just how he used it, right? Like he would use it to start counts in the middle counts and to put guys away. Uh, you know, really couldn't throw that change up enough. It was that much of a weapon. Uh, you know, a guy – in the rotation with me is a Kevin Gosman. It's a splitter and it's a much nastier pitch than my changeup. But as far as usage, um, you know, he, he uses it anytime. It's like, if you get a base runner on Gosman, the next guy's getting splitters because <laughs> that base runner is not going to score. And it's, you know, a unicorn pitch, almost an unhittable pitch in a way. But if I have confidence in my changeup, like he has in his splitter, uh, you know, I should be able to throw that thing anytime. And, and you know, so picking his brain about kind of when he uses it and what he's thinking, you know, it has helped for sure. But, you know, for the most part, I'm just kind of trying to up the usage on the changeup and use it in any time and just kind of get more confidence almost every time I tow the rubber with it. So you talk to Pete Walker a lot. You talk to Kevin Gosman a lot. I'm curious as to your role talking to some of the younger guys. And I think in particular about someone like Mitch White, who obviously there are a lot of surface level comparisons, um, but I spoke to Michael Duarte out in LA shortly after that trade. And he said he had spoken to you about it. Um, do you look at Mitch White and, you know, see an opportunity there for you to impart some of what you've figured out as you worked with your pitch mix that he could maybe, whether it's even if it's not the same pitches, but just kind of that philosophy of how to use five pitches effectively, is that something you can you can pass on a little bit? Yeah, of course. You know, as far as even the role, I mean, Mitch has only been a starter since he's been over here, but let's say he does a little bit of the back and forth thing. You know, I'm definitely here to help with that. That's something that I've, I've done uh, more than enough of, for sure, in my big league career, so can help with that both on, on the mental and physical side and how tough that is to transition roles. 
and then yeah, as far as um, you know, his arsenal and how to deploy it, I, I'm, I definitely love to help. And, and you know, I'm not going to really go out of my way to to try and change anything. But if he has a question, I'm here to answer, no doubt. I mean, we watch each other's bullpens, we watch each other warm up. We're really close as a staff. And you know, Mitch has a power fastball and two really good breaking balls, and it's probably a, a good changeup away from having you know a truly elite arsenal. So I, if I can help him kind of start to do that, um, you know, that'd be a huge help because he's going to be a Blue Jay for the next four years at least. And, um, you know, a guy we're going to count on to throw a lot of innings here in his future. So, you know, if he can keep getting better, that's, that's better for the whole Blue Jays organization. So let's, let's do that for sure. <laughs> um, so another kind of transfer across starters that, that I'm curious about it, and maybe it's not as easy because these guys are both veterans as well and it's unique to each pitcher but last year there was I think it was a start against Boston where you came out after that start and you'd made some mechanical changes that were noticeable even kind of at at a first glance your hands were in a different spot we've seen you say Kikuchi tweak with his mechanics this year we've seen uh, Jose Brios the last couple times out he's placing his glove and his hands a little differently what is the mental toll like of trying to make those mechanical adjustments on the fly versus you know attacking it in an off season where you have all the time in the world yeah it's incredibly stressful it, it really is you know I, I really can't stress that enough i mean it, it, it this is the big leagues. this is the hardest level in the world of major league baseball and if you're out there thinking about your mechanics instead of Aaron Judge in the box and, and trying to be aggressive and having conviction with your pitches, and I'm thinking about where my hands are, I'm at such a disadvantage there. I mean, you're just way behind the eight ball. So if you're out there thinking about mechanics, it's, all, it's a really, really tough place to be. Uh, you know, really just being on the mound without confidence is, is such a, a, a tough place to be. So when I did it, my back was against the wall, man. I had just gotten pulled in the first inning against the Red Sox at a 7 ERA in May. I was really struggling. We had to make a change. And that's what Pete Walker suggested. And I did it and ran with it. And I'm still doing it. And it helped instantly. Sometimes it, it takes a few tries. Sometimes whatever you try doesn't work at all. And I'm, you know, really happy to see Barrios' two starts have gone well. But changing your hands or really anything mechanically in the middle of the season is a massive, massive change. So when you see a guy do it and have success, uh, you've got to kind of tip your cap to him because it is not an easy thing to do. It does not seem easy from afar. It seems like a, a pretty stressful thing. Um, as someone who can't throw any pitches, it seems uh, impossible. <laughs> um, Ross, I got to ask you, I, I know that you guys are focused on a playoff race here, but I also know that you're, you know, the team's union rep. You're a very financially savvy guy uh, and you're a free agent this off season. Have you been able to kind of, block that out from your mind for the most part? Is it, is it something you, you give much energy to at this stage? Uh, man, you know, it, it definitely creeps in your mind for sure. Uh, I mean, I love being a Blue Jay. I can see myself being here, no doubt. I mean, everything about it is great. The city of Toronto is amazing. Our staff, our players are great. Obviously, we're in the middle of what could be a pretty great window for the Toronto Blue Jays as far as winning baseball games. But, um, you know, when you're in a playoff race, you're kind of hyper-focused on that. So that's that's, I'm glad for that because it kind of takes my energy and my focus to that. So just winning every fifth day, we're in a must-win situation basically every time we take the field. Um, you know, so that's enough pressure by itself. So I'll I'll, I'll deal with that and then uh, maybe tackle the free agency stuff in the offseason. All right, uh, quick one before I let you go. I know you're starting Sunday, so Saturday's probably a, a pretty heavily focused day for you. But 
it's Alec Manoa against Shohei Otani on Saturday. As someone who loves the game and, you know, thinks pitching at a high level, how excited are you to get a, to get a front row seat to that one? Yeah, that's pretty, man, that's pretty me. I actually didn't even know that until right now. So you got me excited already. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's uh, two elite arms as well as one very elite bat getting after it. Anytime you can watch Shohei in person, uh, you know, you're pretty lucky. That guy's doing, you know, basically making history every day. And the Manoa, as competitive as anyone out there, he's going to want to strike uh, Otani out every time. So that's, <laughs> that's going to be a heck of a matchup to watch. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Ross Stripling, we'll see you on the Hill on Sunday. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out, man, and best of luck with the rest of the playoff push. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. That was Ross Stripling, starter for the Toronto Blue Jays. A lot of good stuff there. Uh, fascinated by his changeup and just how he approaches pitching in general. He mentioned that Kevin Gosman, if he gets a runner on base, is just going to hammer you with the splitter. Well, Kevin Gosman's on the hill tonight. He'll go against Cutter Crawford as the Jays look to sweep the Red Sox. Beat him 9-3 on Tuesday. Beat him 3-2-10 and 10 last night. This one goes 7-10 first pitch. Ben Wagner on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Blair and Barco have Jay's talk for you post game. You got to feel good about where the Blue Jays are, not just because they've won six of seven and they've kind of re-insulated themselves in the playoff race. Again, they're they're not going to, it's going to take a little bit to get some separation from Tampa Bay and Seattle, positive or negative. Uh, but the most important, there are three kind of goals you can look at. The first is just get a playoff spot and the Jays are three and a half up on the next team out. You've also had the Minnesota Twins lose five in a row. So the Twins and White Sox have kind of, they're not out of it, but both those teams are five games back of the Jays at this point. Boston, if you win today, would be nine games back of you. So you're the more you can knock off opponents or put teams in between you and that cutoff point, the better. Getting the sweep here would make you feel pretty good about that. And then the schedule doesn't get too tough for a little bit still. The Angels are 20 games under 500. You get the Cubs, who are 16 games under 500. The Pirates, 30 games under 500. Then you do have four with the Orioles. That's still going to be a tough series, even if they, you know, they're two and a half games back of a playoff spot right now. Let's say they drift a little bit. They're still going to be a plucky team. I don't think they're going anywhere. And then you get the Rangers, who are 10 games under 500. You don't get stretches like this very often in 2022 in the ALDs. You might in 2023 with a more balanced schedule, but uh, this is the time, and the Jays are going to try to go after Cutter Crawford tonight. They got to him okay last time they saw him. July 23rd, three runs over six innings. Not the best. They hit five of 20 off of him with a walk. Nobody had a multi-hit game. Biggio, the only extra base hit. And despite Cutter Crawford having pretty big splits this year and in the minors this year and last, Jay's only one lefty in the lineup, and it's not Biggio who doubled last time. It's Rymel Tapia. If you missed it earlier, uh, the Jays, their big six who are in there pretty much every day are still in there. Alejandro Kirk's getting a day off, hasn't had one in a while. So Danny Jansen will catch Kevin Gosman. Uh, so everyone slides up a slot in the order. So you're looking at George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Teoscar Hernandez, Bo Bichette, Matt Chapman, Rymel Tapia, Santiago Espinal, and Danny Jansen. That's lining up behind Gosman, who you know what to expect. 
a lot of swing and miss outside the zone as get as he gets guys to chase and a top 15 rate of swing and miss inside the zone as well. I read that leaderboard off earlier. The only guys who are in the top 15 in swing and miss inside the zone and outside the zone, Rodon, Cole, Ray, Cease, McClanahan, Burns, and Kevin Gosman. That's why he's been very good even with a sky-high batting average on balls in play that is do some regression. Gosman's faced the Red Sox four times this year. Mentioned the stat earlier. 26 innings, four earned runs, 37 to two strikeout to walk ratio. He's been uh, he's been just fine against these guys. The Red Sox do get three players back, though, in Bogarts, Arroyo, and Pham. The lineup as follows behind Cutter Crawford. Pham, Rafael Devers, J.D. Martinez, Xander Bogarts, Christian Arroyo, Rob Snyder, Reese McGuire, Bobby Dahlbeck, and Jaron Duran. That's a better Red Sox lineup than the one you saw yesterday. Arguably a better pitcher. Um, Brian Bayo was excellent yesterday. Looked much more like double A, triple A Brian Bayo than the Brian Bayo we'd seen in the majors so far. And certainly the last time the Jays saw him. Cutter Crawford has a little bit more sample this year of being okay. ERA doesn't look that great, but uh, you get into some of the specific pitch stuff. That rising fastball with the cutter that plays off of it, not a terrible combination. It can get You can hit it hard. Those rising kind of upward burst fastballs have given some Jays challenges this year, but in general, they've hit right-handed pitchers who are in this kind of class not too bad. There was, again, no one's going to forget that little two-week stretch where they couldn't hit anyone with sub-elite stuff. But for the most part, they've done damage. By the way, after yesterday's game, if you look at Major League Baseball's stats at the team level since the 40-game mark of the season, Blue Jays chase outside of the zone less often than all but four other teams. They also have a higher contact rate than all but four other teams. While there are certainly improvements to be made with some individuals about their pitch selection and their swing decisions and their situational hitting, the Jays as a whole have gotten pretty solid at that. And I mention that just because there have been a couple examples of late of guys working pretty good plate appearances in big spots. Um, Yesterday, that didn't result in many runs. That's okay. Process-wise, the Jays are doing all right. Guess what the rank is in terms of overall offense over that stretch, too, where their plate discipline and swing decisions have been much better. You guessed it. First, by WRC+, plus over that 80-plus game stretch. So things, they're getting there. They're figuring it out. It's not going to be linear. It's not going to be perfect. But process-wise, they're, they're starting to get there. And you can look at guys like, Guriel and Kirk and Teoscar Hernandez, who have come up big in big spots uh, and see those approach improvements. You know, yesterday in a in a pretty big spot, Vlad lets a change up just below the zone go. Now, as Joe Siddle pointed out to me, it wasn't the the best of swings that saw him go the other way. But not a bad decision, at least, to let that change up go and, and try to get something you could 
take the other way. Now, always room for improvement still. Um, Vlad will get a shot at that against Cutter Crawford tonight. Someone in the text line asked if I think the Jays can win over 93 games this year. Um, it's possible. I Right now, the projected cutoff for the top wildcard spot is 90 wins. That would That's what would be expected to get you that top spot. So 93 is maybe aiming a little high, but a lot of things are possible, especially if you make hay these next two weeks with the schedule a little lighter. That continues tonight against a struggling Red Sox team, Kevin Gosman against Cutter Crawford. 7-10 first pitch. Ben Wagner with the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Blair and Barker have you with Jay's talk post game uh, fan drive times next. And then I'm back at three o'clock tomorrow. Thank you to the fill in staff, Armin and Dylan behind the glass and producer JR. Uh, I'm back tomorrow at three o'clock Jay's talk plus on sports at 590, the fan.